welcome to Linguistics After Dark. I'm Jenny. I'm Sarah. And I'm Eli. If you've got a question about language and you want experts to answer it without having done any research whatsoever, we're your podcast. Settle in, grab a snack or a drink, and enjoy. I like to think of us as a car talk for linguistics. Like if your language is making a funny noise and you don't know what it is, you can call us up and ask. (laughs) So apparently the first episode my family listened to in the car um, as they were driving to our family Christmas thing. And my dad, who raised me on car talk, was just like, oh, yes, this. And then we got to the puzzler segment and they were like, you are straight up ripping off car talk. And they told me that when we got together and I was like, yes, 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 we straight up are. (laughs) We 100% are ripping off car talk and it's great. Also, fun fact, when I was in college and I was taking my intro linguistics class, one of our extra credit homework assignments was to listen to car talk and analyze the analyze the click and clack accents. Oh, my gosh. Um. And I was like, are you kidding? You're going to give me points in class for doing something I do anyway? Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> it was I so mean, good. That's all of intro ling for people who know that they're going to be linguists. That's true. <laughs> cool. Shall we all learn a language thing? Let's. Yes. Um, all right. I'm so excited about this language thing. Yeah. Um, so did you know that there's a gummy candy that you can use to compare the sounds available in different languages and also study languages' potential historic connection to one another? No. This feels... It's the Swadesh fish. <laughs> <laughs> I don't... I don't... I feel like I learned a thing, but it's not the thing you wanted me to learn. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I've been sitting on that pun for like a year. Um... So a Swadesh list, which is not the same thing as Swedish fish, <laughs> is a list of words uh, developed by somebody whose last name was Swadesh. I forget his first name. And we don't do research. And we so don't do research. <laughs> look, look to the show notes to find out. Yeah. Or just imagine that he never had a first name. Either way. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this guy Swadesh wrote um, a list of like 250 something words that has been revised a few times and replaced by other people's lists and whatever. But uh, it was like culturally stable, quote unquote, words that you could ask speakers of any language to produce. And then you could write down what they say and compare the words or the sounds across several languages to see if those languages are related. So this is like uh, kinship terms and that kind of thing. Yeah, like kinship terms. What's your name for mom and dad? Right. Basic pronouns, basic animals, basic body parts, um, things like the sky, the ground, water, um, things that are not very much culturally dependent. So the list has been revised a few times based on like things that they discovered in the process of using it actually are kind of culturally dependent. So they either replaced a word or knocked it off. And then, like, other people later on wrote better lists that people use now. But this was the first one that was really used to do this kind of cross-linguistic historical analysis. Um, But I also used it for a project where I was pretending to do linguistic fieldwork because it was for class. And I was studying Romanian, which is a language we do know about. It has been documented. But I I thought you were going to say I was studying Romanian which is a language. 
<laughs> it is. That's true. Um, no, I so I got a friend of mine who uh, speaks Romanian, and I was not allowed to look up anything about Romanian. I just had to ask her to produce these words. So I would be like, how do you say mom? And she would say whatever is the Romanian word for mom. And I went through this list of like 200 words. And as she said them, I wrote down the phonetic transcription of the word and sometimes asked her, oh, so, you know, mom is a word. Is palm also a word? And if she said yes, that's a different word or no, that's not a word or oh, that's the same word, then based on her reaction to my question, I could decide whether like m and p were both sounds that existed or sounds that didn't exist or the same sound to a Romanian speaker. And so I did this for a phonetics class and I had to pretend to be like a linguistic field worker figuring out what the different sounds available in Romanian are, which was really fun. And I would love to do it again sometime. Yeah, I agree. I found that um, we did a field methods class uh, when I was studying linguistics in college. And that is one of my favorite things that I have done when I was studying linguistics. Mm -hmm. um, we specifically picked a language that nobody in the class knew. And then we broke up like different aspects of the grammar or the morphology or the phonology. Um, so, I mean, we had a whole semester. It wasn't intro. Um, and we like we constructed a grammar of Siswati. That's so cool. Yeah. The, so do you have an example of a word on a Swadesh list that was found to be culturally dependent and so was removed? Um, yes. Oh, so they originally had the word for claw, like an animal claw. Mm -hmm. um, but it turns out there's several languages where claw for animal and fingernails for humans are not distinguished. Oh, interesting. And so, but like the underlying concept was fingernail. And then I guess claw is a more specific word in more languages than fingernail. So they replaced claw with fingernail cool. so that you'd be getting the more general word in each language so that it was easier to see the historical connections. Uh, that's really cool. And it sounds like a useful thing to have and probably something that linguists are still hammering out how exactly we can best use them and what words should be on them. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, let's head to the main part of the show with real language questions from real listeners. As a reminder, if you want to send us a question, you can email it in text to questions at linguisticsafterdark.com, uh, or you can send us an audio recording of you speaking your question aloud, especially for those phonology and accent questions. Uh, it's really good to hear the accent that you're trying to talk about or the words that you're trying to talk about. So definitely email that audio in. Okay. Bex asks via Slack, what composes an accent? Popularly, it's sound production and word order, but if I recall correctly, word choice is also a factor. So what else? And Galadriel's asks via Slack, also, little kids speak. Is it its own dialect? So we put these two questions together because they are phonetics-y things, which also means that I'm going to throw this question at Sarah. Yeah, so the first thing I thought about from Bex's question was that, yeah, accent is basically sound production. Um, I tend to think of word order and word choice as being dialect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would um, agree with that. 
so accent is typically, yeah, how you produce the sounds, what vowels you use, what consonants you use, and in what um, contexts you use them. Because um, I guess one of my favorite examples, which I feel like I might have talked about on a previous episode, but I also might not have. I don't know. Um, I had two friends growing up that used the sound A in words that I didn't but they used them in two different sets of words. So one of them would eat scrambled eggs for breakfast, and he had legs that he walked with. And I was like, what are you doing? The sound in those words is eh. And he was like, you're wrong. And then I also had a friend who carried her books to school in a bag, and dogs like wagged their tails. And I was like, what are you doing? That sound is ah. And she was like, no, you're wrong. <laughs> and so it's like what sounds you have, but also what contexts you put them in. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a point to be made here uh, for people who haven't gone through a phonology class that sounds are not just the sound itself, like the vowel itself or the consonant itself. Sounds are a production of the environment, meaning the sounds that are on either side of them. And occasionally, sometimes, supposedly, some sounds that are like even a little bit further away, or like the, the whether that part of the word is stressed mm-hmm. or not, um, that that can affect what sound actually comes out of your mouth, mm-hmm. as opposed to what sound is in your brain that belongs to that word, which also sometimes is why you don't hear if somebody else has an accent if it's slightly different than yours or if it's if it's close enough right if you're not consciously focusing on that or if somebody tells you that you have an accent you're going to say no not just because it's the way that you've always spoken but also because you don't hear the word that comes out of your mouth and throat you hear the word as the set of sounds that exists in your head yeah And your accent is kind of like a filter that goes on top of what's in your head to in between your brain and your throat and mouth. Yes. Um, One of my other favorite things having to do with that was, um, I think in the same class where we had the car talk assignment, um, shout out Professor Barnes, great human being. Um, He played us a clip um, of someone saying the sound or word, I guess black and asked us what word it was i'm going to say it again and then i want to hear what each of you thinks what word i'm saying and listeners play along black jenny what did you hear i definitely heard black like the color okay eli what did you hear i also heard black as in the color okay so then he played us the longer clip with the speaker saying the whole sentence where the speaker said around the black ah what is it? So I heard around the block that time with a like fairly strong accent. Wow, yeah, that's really cool. Eli, what do you think? Um, I mean, obviously we were primed for it, but uh, yeah, that word is definitely block as in a city block. Yes. And I'm particularly interested, Eli, does that sound familiar to you, that like accent? Yeah, I have no problem with that. It is the Chicago ah. Yes. Which, obviously, you live in Chicago. That should not be surprising. No, and I, I don't quite have that. I, yeah. have, I have final devoicing, but I don't quite have that. Um, but it's really interesting because when you hear the word in isolation, you 
hear it as like whatever it is to you. But as soon as you get it into a context, and he probably did a better job giving us an entire sentence where you also heard more of the speaker's voice, but I don't remember the sentence and I'm not good enough at imitating the accent to do it off the top of my head. But as soon as you realize that that's what's happening, like the entire vowel space in your head just adjusts itself and you stop noticing or caring that the other person is saying slightly different vowels from what you're saying because you're like, oh, well, they say ah for ah and they say ah for ah and it just like cycles around and your brain is totally cool with it. This is a thing that happened to me when I was a kid and we went on a trip to London. Mm -hmm. I had the hardest time understanding people for about the first 12 hours. Mm -hmm. And then something happened and I was totally fine. And I remember realizing it about a day into the trip and just being like, oh, okay. I was having to ask people to repeat themselves a lot. And all of a sudden I didn't have to. Which is really cool. Brains are cool. They really are. Brains are amazing. But I think that this also, this plugs back into Bex's question about word choice Mm -hmm. and word order, which I'm interested to know what they're referring to with word order. Word choice comes with dialect things, which often also comes with an accent, Mm -hmm. but they're two different things. And that word choice is going to be part of the dialect, which you would use with whatever accent you're going to use. Right. Mm -hmm. But sometimes this is where you get like, oh, the lilt or the brogue or that kind of thing where people kind of just lump it all in Mm -hmm. together. Yeah. I think word order, again, I don't know exactly what Bex was intending by that, but I, the thing that comes to my mind for it is whether you say like, plug in something or plug something in or um how flexible you can be with raising is it called raising with parts of the sentence Um, topicalization kind of stuff yeah yeah so how flexible you can be with raising a later part of the sentence earlier to emphasize things or whether you can just raise it up and it's not emphatic necessarily so i can say like the car i bought And if you just mean that to be, I bought the car, for most people, that's weird. I can imagine there are some dialects where that's less weird. I don't know. I mean, there's a pretty solid, like, if you grew up in a family where your uh, parents or grandparents were Yiddish or German, like spoke Yiddish or German, um, then you will really often get that kind of thing. And sometimes it's emphatic and sometimes it's not. Yeah, actually, the the example I had in mind was an English teacher I had who did she her family spoke Yiddish. And she apologized to us on like the first or second day of school and said, Look, I'm gonna say some weird things like throw me up the stairs the hat, (laughs) instead of throw the hat up the stairs to me. She's like, that's just how my parents talk. So it's how I talk. And if I say something that you don't understand, just tell me to re-say it. And so I've had that sentence like in my brain as an example. I like that. That's fun. Yeah. So let's move on to Galadriel's part of this question, which is about little kid speak and whether that's a dialect or an accent or what is going on there. Mm-hmm. That's a really good question because it then gets to like, well, what is a dialect? And as we were talking about the whole accent thing and like Eli was saying, 
word choice moves into the concept of a dialect that accent kind of overlays with. Um, there's also like that spectrum of dialect to language. Mm-hmm. So there's that famous quip that's like a language is just a dialect with an army and a navy, um, which I think is cool and like definitely true because we associate languages with geopolitical entities usually. Um, but like if you go to Germany and if you go to the Netherlands, you expect to hear German and Dutch, but actually in the region on either side of the political border between Germany and the Netherlands, those speakers of Dutch and those speakers of German, I think if I recall correctly, are more mutually intelligible to each other or are mutually intelligible to each other in a way that they are not with other speakers in their own country or the speakers farther away from each other in Germany and the Netherlands would be. Um, And so if you had just drawn those political borders slightly differently, you could have three different languages, quote unquote, or just one language. And you would just be like, oh, these are dialects of Germano-Dutch or whatever, Deutsch-Dutch. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. You can see some similar stuff with like uh, the Northern Midwest and Canada, Mm -hmm. where you've got a lot of similar things happening phonologically and I think uh, like morphologically and syntactically. Um, where American English and Canadian English start to overlap, but those are like two well-established dialects that we talk about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was also thinking about, I don't remember which countries it is, but you've got situations in Scandinavia, I think, where you'll have like a mutual intelligibility thing. And if they weren't two different countries, then they would be considered different dialects because there's so much overlap and so much Mm -hmm. like so much of the language is mutually intelligible or of the languages are mutually intelligible versus like Italy where you have all these different quote-unquote dialects that are so completely mutually unintelligible that if they weren't all in Italy they would be considered different languages, but they get talked about as being dialects of Italian. I was about to say the same thing about Chinese. Oh, uh-huh. Because people always describe Mandarin and Cantonese as being dialects. And, like, they share a writing system and they share some historical roots. Like, there's a lot of phrases that you can see how they are similar to each other. Like, I suck at Cantonese, but Ni uh, Hao in Mandarin and, like, Neho, except with better tones in Cantonese, are both hello, but then a lot of other phrases aren't even that close to the same, um, let alone all of the other, uh, I'm going to say languages that are spoken in China, mm-hmm. that people just say, oh, it's a dialect of Chinese, and I feel like we really should be calling them Chinese languages. Yeah, um, Victor Meyer from Language Log usually uses the word topolects to kind of sidestep the whole language dialect thing i think especially because there's some political considerations mm-hmm. there yeah um but that's that a good word makes it really clear that it's that those lang- uh, those languages or those topolects i guess are really specifically languages that belong to a specific place mm-hmm. 
I think it also sidesteps the idea that there are some languages that are within the Chinese borders that are definitely not Sinitic languages that kind of get lumped in with Chinese. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So topalect goes into this whole thing where you have dialect. There's topalect, there's familect, which is like within your own family. And there's idiolect, which is like the dialect that is just you. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're the only speaker of that dialect. Um, and then language just gets to be special because it has this political... Um, this political affiliation, which is also why there's a lot of uh, like separatist regions or claims for independence that are based around, well, we have our own language. You know, mm -hmm. you've got in Spain, you've got the Basque region and you've got uh, Catalonia mm -hmm. speaking Catalan, mm -hmm. right? Not that Linguistics After Dark takes any particular political stances on the geopolitical stage. Right. So what do we think about this little kid speak thing? I mean, I think there's a question, is this the language of small children or is this the language that adults tend to speak to babies? True. I think we should approach this from the idea of what adults say to little kids because little kids learning to talk is acquisition. We've been talking about dialect and accent. If y'all want to learn about acquisition, send us a question about acquisition and, and we'll talk about that. But for this, uh, what do we think about baby talk? I would have said that's less a dialect and more a register. Oh. Yeah. I like that. What's Can you explain what a register is? So a register is like the style or mode of speaking. Like one person with one dialect can have multiple registers. So I have a register for academic English for when I'm writing an essay. And I have a formal register for like talking to a professor, but face-to-face -face or talking to a supervisor at work where I'm being formal and professional, but I'm not going to be using the same types of sentence constructions and word choices as in, like, an essay or my senior thesis or whatever. And then I've got a different register from both of those for, you know, texting my friends or talking to my friends face-to-face. -face. And where the lines between your different registers are drawn is going to depend on the social contexts in which you use them. And so that can be kind of flexible and vary from person to person. But everyone has different registers that they use and code switches between them usually without or often without realizing that that's what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So I think that I would consider baby talk or parentese or whatever you want to call that a register that a lot of people use for talking to little kids. Yeah. I dig this explanation. Definitely. Um, and I tell you why I dig this explanation. And it's because of how people speak to their pets. Mm -hmm. So there are some people who baby talk to their pets, and there are some people who talk to their pets as though they are fully formed adults who also inhabit the house. Uh -huh. And when I have like tried to baby talk to a pet and it's felt weird, it's felt weird in the way that speaking to an adult like talking to a baby or like speaking formally in an informal situation would feel weird. So it's the exact same feeling for me. And to me, that's like you hit the nail right on the head with this being a register thing, not a dialect or an accent thing. 
Yeah. Yeah, I hadn't thought about the pets part, but I think you're right. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Cool. Cool. Are we ready to move on to another question? Yeah. I'm good. All right. So our next question is from Georgia via email. And Georgia asks, what's the most valuable way you believe that linguistics can improve society? Ooh, um, there are so many ways. I think that we're really starting to see the way that springs to mind for me, um, which is letting go of peevishness. We're starting to see this happen a little bit as people start to understand the relationship between prescriptivism and descriptivism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this also just calls back to the register thing because there are places where you're going to want to be a little more conservative about how you speak. uh, And there are places where it's not going to matter so much. The idea of prescriptivism or linguistic peevery is that there aren't different registers. And I think people are really starting to realize that no, this is how people have always varied their speech. And I think that that will open us to a point where we stop judging people because of the register or dialect that they're using and understand it as a linguistic function of that person interacting with society in a way that might have been unexpected to us, but isn't wrong or bad or evil. Mm -hmm. Right. Another outgrowth of that is starting to look at things like comparison between so-called standard American English and African-American vernacular English, Mm -hmm. um, where I think that general awareness of African-American vernacular English as a solid alternate dialect of English and also a a disestablishment of so-called standard English as having some kind of prestige would be a really valuable way to start breaking down an unconscious barrier in society. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's something I talk about with my students a lot, not necessarily in that level of formality, but when I talk about writing or I talk about formal usage of language for school purposes, I try to impress on them that when we talk about grammar rules that you're learning in school, it's not about this is the only way to speak, but this is a style that you should learn and that you should be able to use in an academic setting or a formal setting because you convey not only the content of your words, but also some emotion and some like information about your level of seriousness and whatever with the way that you get your content across. And so definitely Black students... Um, and also white students or uh, second language English users, um, whatever English you're using in your free time, in your downtime, whatever your casual social register is, is probably going to be different from most of the other kids in the class. Probably in a group of 20 kids, I have like 12 different kind of downtime social registers what we're aiming for is like a single academic register that everyone can kind of agree on, so to speak. And I think, Eli, you were saying that we run into trouble when people are like, well, how come you're not using that very particular standard register all the time? Because I use it all the time. So how come everybody else doesn't use it all the time? And yeah, I think we definitely are seeing that sort of deteriorate um, slowly, but we definitely are. 
And more linguistic awareness of that, I think, would be a net positive on society. Yes. I think you could also draw a connection to recognition of language evolution and language change. Like the idea that language changes, language always has changed, that's not a bad thing. The kids today aren't ruining language any more than they were when people talked about that 50 years ago or 2,000 years ago. Language changes and that's fine. And I think that that has, like, people have also been kind of growing more aware of that and talking about that more. Mm -hmm. And I think that can go hand in hand with the, there are different versions of language already right now. And that's also fine and the way language has always been. Yeah? Yeah. I think it's interesting, too, because a lot of that, like, there is one right way of talking. Um, I feel like it's a recent problem. And I have absolutely no evidence to back this up. And I'm not looking for any because we don't do research. But I would posit that that has a lot to do with the rise of mass communication, such as radio and television, and now the internet, um, where people are hearing the standard broadcast accent, the standard broadcast register. Hmm. And the people for whom that is their like native accent, native register of casual speech, they're like, oh, I'm doing it right. I hear it validated. And even if it's subconscious, they're like, oh, this is the way things are. And then to hear other people not doing that, they're like, why are they not doing that? That's just the way it is. And they don't realize that not everyone has that, um, which I think about that a lot when I think about Great Britain, because every time I hear of a new accent or a new like regionalism or like, oh, yeah, I can tell you're from this particular area of Great Britain because of you said this thing or whatever. It blows my mind because I think about the same reactions I have to American and Canadian speakers and how much geographical space we have in North America. And then, comparatively, how little geographical space there is in Great Britain. Like, as a country, it is not a big place. And they <laughs> no, have so many very distinct accents that are so small and so regional. And, like, there's no way that they are sitting there going, oh, this is the right way to speak English. I mean, they probably are, because I'm sure there are people like that everywhere. But you can't live in a country that small and with the travel possibilities that we have now, like you can go to all the cities in England if you want to and Scotland and Wales and Ireland and like in that area and hear so many different kinds of English and you might like some of them better. You might like dislike a certain group of people who speak a certain variety and therefore be like, well, the people I hate speak that way. So I hate that way of speaking, but you can't have that like weird underlying thought that oh there's one way of doing this and I think a lot of the variation in North America there is still a ton of variation but I think it's more gradual like the difference between different parts of the Midwest and the different parts of New England are subtler and so and even the transition from the Northeast into like the Mid-Atlantic into the Midwest there are hallmarks of each of those regions, but they're not like a full on, oh my God, you're not from here, you're so different. 
And so I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that. I'm sorry. Well, I have a place to go with that, which is to talk about received pronunciation or RP, right? which Mm -hmm. is the BBC's or actually was the BBC's standard required accent for all of its radio announcers and television announcers until very recently. I think in the last 10 or 15 years, the BBC allowed its anchors to not speak in RP and instead speak in their native accent. And now all of a sudden you hear Scottish accents and Northern accents and Welsh accents all over the BBC. And it's fantastic. Uh, But they used to have this standard required one size fits all thing for the entire country, which was then given prestige. And people considered that to, I don't know if people considered it to be the one true way for everyday speech, but it certainly was like a government endorsed. Here is the accent that we think is right. Um, I wonder if your thing about regional differences in America being much more gradual, despite the fact that we have much more area to cover, has to do with differing ideas of regional identity. Yeah, I feel like our regional identities are much bigger. Yes, like we don't have a lot of stock in I'm from this town. We have a lot of stock in I'm from this state or even I'm from this group of five states. Yeah, exactly. I think like, for example, my, if somebody were to ask me like my core sub-American locative identity, I would say, like I would first say Midwestern before I would say Illinois or Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's what really gets me because I'm like, we have these regions that are several states big. And then I look at the UK and I'm like, um, you are a state. I mean, not really. You're like four states, but <laughs> you are the size of some American states. And so to be like, oh, this region is like six of you. But then you have so many really distinct varieties in that small area. It's just baffling. Yeah, you get people who are like, excuse you, I'm from Stratford east of Avon, not Stratford west of Avon. Right. <laughs> I will say, coming at this as someone who has spent most of the last decade and then some in California throws things off a little bit, because I think I would say Southern California or San Diego about as frequently as I would say I'm from California, because Southern California and Northern California are very different regions in some ways. Yeah. But at the same time, like... California also definitely has I mean, an identity unto itself. California is really big. California is really big. It's really big and it spans some continental and like national United States region breaks in a way yep. that other big states like Alaska and Texas don't. Yep. So like... Because it's not just big, it's long. Right, yeah, it's long that's... and it's along the coast. And so... Like, Texas is enormous, but it's surrounded by other southern states only. Whereas California is surrounded by, like, southwestern states on one end and the Pacific Northwest on the other. And if you think about those regionally, I don't, Mm -hmm. I cannot fathom a cultural or regional similarity between, like, Oregon and Arizona. So, yeah, so that throws off the, I would say, region first because... I think I would say 
California sometimes and Southern California other times, depending on the context in which I'm being asked to explain where I'm from. But Well, in some ways, Southern California is the region level for you. Yeah. But regardless, the point is that, like, the idea of having that many different regional identities in one tiny, tiny geographical area is kind of all the more mind-boggling. Yeah. Because it's, like, California's weird in terms of size and identity in, like, the exact opposite way somehow. Switching gears a little bit. I also want to answer this question in a different way, which is that I think contact with linguistics in general makes one more likely to be uh, a polyglot or learn a second language. Mm -hmm. And I think um, America is a really interesting place because many people here do speak more than one language fluently, but uh, the majority of Americans speak only one language fluently. And that is not true basically anywhere else in the world. Mm-hmm. Everywhere else in the world, people are polyglots by default and not even necessarily just because, oh, they have to learn English in school for business, but because they're living in a place where they do actually have to use both or all three of the languages that they know on a daily basis. Yeah. And I think that knowing more than one language expands your capacity to imagine different cultures, but I think it also probably promotes a little bit of wanderlust to go learn about the people who speak that language if it's not one that you're using every day. Yeah. That makes sense. It also, like, even studying languages that you don't use on a daily basis or that you are unlikely to go visit um, for whatever reason, whether you are like me and studying historical languages that are not actively used anymore, or you're studying a language from somewhere so far away that you don't have the funds or don't foresee ever having the funds to get there. Mm -hmm. Um, I just think that studying a language, learning new words, learning new ways that concepts can be delineated, like the thing with the Swadesh list about like, what words are culturally dependent? Why do we say claw and fingernail? And then some people just use fingernail or, you know, where do we draw the lines between different types of family members or different colors? Um, It just, it makes you think about the world and makes you think about how brains work. Um, And like learning other languages has improved my English, I think, because I've been exposed to different sentence patterns and different like ways of emphasizing or caring about things in terms of how you express yourself and it kind of gives me more options like obviously not every sentence pattern from Chinese is a valid sentence pattern in English Um, and there I go saying Chinese I should say Mandarin because that's what I know but like it makes you think and gives you a little bit of flexibility. I think an interesting outgrowth of this is that um, different languages have different obligatory parts to them. And a big example of this is evidentials, which I won't go super deep into, but basically in some languages, you can't just assert a fact. You have to also state implicitly in the way that you're asserting that fact, how you know that fact, whether you saw it or heard it from somebody or it's common knowledge, or you don't know it, but you think that it's true or something like that. Mm -hmm. 
And some languages have no way for you to just assert a fact without having the evidential on it. Mm -hmm. But in English, for example, and in many other common languages, you don't have to obligatorily say how you know something, um, but you can. It is nothing in English that stops you from saying, you know, the sky is blue and that's common knowledge, right? right. Or, um, oh, my friend has an appointment this afternoon. I saw it in her agenda or whatever. Um, and so that's a different, you know, it's not just word order, first sentence pattern and that kind of thing. It's also these kinds of obligatory things or different ways that tenses are broken up, different mm -hmm. ways of thinking about patterns in time. And then you also mentioned kinship stuff, right? Where it's like, oh, are the uncles that are my mom's brothers different than the uncles that are my dad's brothers? Or like, are all of the people who are, you know, not not directly in my immediate family, but at my my generation, do I just have one name for them, right? Which there are some languages that do that. English doesn't. We have several different kinds of cousins for that. Yes, if we bother. Mm -hmm. If we bother, right. Uh, so I, yeah, I think that it's a really great point that it's not just directly related to the language that you might be learning, but just the idea that so many people tie ability to think and ability to express with the way that language happens, that having your eyes open to other options probably correlates, we don't do research, probably correlates with being able to more quickly understand that somebody that you're talking with may not have that same frame of reference. Mm -hmm. Right. So you two both definitely said um, I, what I think of maybe the top two most valuable ways. Um, but a third valuable thing that I thought about um, when Eli said general contact with linguistics is realizing how influential language is and the study of language in virtually every other domain. Um, oh, yeah. There is a yeah. fantastic infographic. I'm sure there's many of them. I will find one of them and put it in the show notes. I um, know exactly the infographic that you're thinking of, though. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a giant circle. And some versions of it is like a circle in the middle and then a bunch of circles overlapping it, like a giant Venn diagram. And then some of them, it's just a circle in the middle with like an outer circle and pie slices. But it's like, okay, here's linguistics in the middle. And then on the outside, there's like biology, chemistry, physics, mathematics, sociology, psychology, economics, blah, 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 blah. Like so many different domains of knowledge and work and stuff. And then between those two rings, there's how does linguistics help the study of that thing? And I challenge you all to think of a domain, go to the show notes, look at the one I put there. Think of something that's not on the outside of this diagram. And if you can't, or if you ask us and we can't come up with a way that linguistics is involved with or could help the study of that thing, I will be absolutely amazed. Like, I think linguistics is such a young discipline, at least modern linguistics, yes. right? Like linguistics goes back literally thousands of years, but linguistics as an academic discipline is so young that I think 
A, it has all of these really great overlaps, but B, they're not recognized yet. And they're not mm-hmm. recognized that way in larger society either. Like mm-hmm. every time that a podcast or a radio programmer or a TV show needs to know something about language and they go and talk to a literature professor or uh-huh. like a like a journalist or a psychology professor who isn't doing linguistic psychology, you know, it's like... I'm not sure that they know that linguistics exists and that there are people who specialize in these, which is not to say that journalists and literature professors and psychologists don't know about language. They do because there's such big overlap, but also there is an entire discipline that is all about language and you could go just to the source, but I think people don't know that yet. Right. Not to mention every Mm -hmm. linguist's least favorite question. Oh, you're a linguist? How many languages do you speak? Because, yeah, a lot of us speak a lot of languages, but that's not actually what we're doing with our time. Exactly. A lot of us speak a lot of languages because in order to learn about languages, you have to know what they are. (laughs) Well, and all three hosts of this podcast, we are all linguists and none of us is in a higher education academic setting. None of us are doing professional linguistics but i think all of us use linguistics in the things that we do yes Mm -hmm. so that's my thing i think uh linguistics as a field can improve society just by existing and by contributing in all of those overlapping ways and i think that society recognizing that um would double that impact because they would be able to go intentionally reach out in those ways that they maybe don't realize they can now and get the support that they're looking for. Yeah, that's a really good point. Okay, so that was a lot of serious discussion. Now let's uh, move on to a little bit more of a silly question. Uh, Masha asks via Twitter, what's your favorite ridiculous etymology? What's the etymology that when you tell people, they respond with, fuck you, that's not where that word comes from? Um, Okay, so I have several. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm known in my friend group for not having a swear jar but having the unsolicited etymology jar uh oh i'm so sorry for your wallet i know it's pretty rough but uh it's cool um anyway so there's the fact that uh canary is derived from the word for dog um easel is derived from the word for donkey and lettuce is derived from the word for milk Um, (laughs) okay so there's that Uh, But my favorite one, and the one with the best story attached, is uh, that the word money, as in the stuff that you pay in order to receive goods and services, comes from the verb to warn, as in to, like, admonish, which also comes from that word. And uh, I was explaining this to um, some students, and they were like, oh, is it because you warn someone with money? Or, like something something bank loans and paying back things and i was like wow you guys are really creative and no it is none of those things (laughs) um they were really impressive guesses they just none of them were right um no so what happened was the ancient romans um in like oh this is embarrassing that i don't know the year but i'll put it in the show notes it was like something bc I want to say 356. We'll find out how close I was. Anyway, in something BC that might have been 356, the Romans were having a battle slash war with um, 
a tribe of Gauls, so people from modern day France. And they went and like hid or kind of like took cover um, in this temple in Rome and because the Gauls had come to like attack the city. And so the Roman fighters were hiding out in this temple and they assumed, stupidly, that the Gauls were going to kind of adhere to the ancient kind of rules of war, which were you fight during the day and at night everybody goes to sleep and then gets up to uh, stab each other in the morning. And so the Romans are in this temple. Uh, it was a temple to Juno, and um, she was the like queen of the Olympian gods, Hera, called Juno in Latin. Um, and so she, it was a temple to her, and they're hiding out in there. They have some scouts who are supposed to be keeping watch overnight while everyone else is sleeping. And I don't know if the scouts fell asleep or were distracted or like what happened, but they didn't notice the gulls climbing up the hill toward the temple in the middle of the night. But the ones who did notice that happening were the geese who live on that hill. And if you know one thing about geese, <laughs> it's that they are mean and they are loud. And so these geese notice that there are some strange humans climbing their hill in the dark. And the geese are not pleased with this. So they go and attack the gulls very loudly. And the gulls, I'm sure, loudly go, what the fuck? <laughs> geese. As you do. And the Romans wake up because they're like, what the fuck? Geese. And As you do. As you do. And they look out and they see the geese attacking the gulls and they're like, oh crap gulls so they you know get up grab their stuff go in the middle of the night manage to defend themselves drive the gulls off however this battle and war wind up all while presumably avoiding the geese presumably avoiding the geese yes um and so the battle winds up the war winds up and the romans say juno thank you you have saved our butts we are going to rename this temple or not rename it but a lot of the temples were, um, like, the temple of god name the somebody. They had all these epithets with them, so there were temples to different aspects of the gods. So this became the temple to Juno Moneta, Juno the Warner, Juno who gave us this warning about the Gauls via her now sacred geese. Okay, that all makes sense. Where does the currency bit come in? Yep. So over time, a lot of the temples in the city of Rome also uh, began to serve other um, like governmental administrative purposes. And the temple of Saturn was like the treasury. Um, the temple of Castor and Pollux held all of the census records, if I recall correctly. Uh, and the temple of Juno Moneta became the mint where they actually produced coins. And so I don't oh. know exactly how it happened, but in, at some point Moneta turned into money. And so that's where we get that from. I mean, I bet it's huh. I bet it's through mint because that's sort of I've always wondered about where the word mint, as in a thing that prints money, comes from. Pretty clearly, comes directly from moneta, hmm. and I so probably money comes in through mint. Yeah, I'll have to look that one up. Check the show notes, friends. I wonder. This is totally unsubstantiated, but I wonder if mint was reanalyzed as some sort of nominal past thing. Where you had like money, mint. I just tried to oh, figure out how that like money was dropped. Minted, yeah. Yeah. Huh. That's probably entirely mm. false. Cool idea though. Um, okay. That is super cool. Uh now 
uh, there is no epic war story to go with my favorite fuck you etymology um i i do there are some false friends that i like so like the fact that island and uh uh isle come from two different things oh so that's another oh. one where island just comes from a germanic island and the s was put in there because people liked latin okay and isle <laughs> actually comes from isla and then insula yeah okay right. and, um there's also okay which is the only acronym etymology that's actually correct <laughs> <laughs> or you might say all correct yes exactly <laughs> um but the one that i want to talk about is actually the word locks um, so locks, which uh, at least in American English means uh, smoked salmon. Um, so you take salmon and you cure it and then you cold smoke it and then you slice it up and then you put it on a bagel that has a lot of cream cheese on it. Uh, that's locks. And it's spelled L-O-X, right? It's spelled L-O-X in English. Okay. Um, in a lot of other languages, it's spelled L-A-X. Okay. Um, but I like locks's etymology because... Locks, the word, has not changed. It has not changed for as far back as we can trace it, using the comparative method and other types of historical linguistic analysis. If you go all the way back as far as you can, you still get this word, locks, which might mean salmon specifically, but also might mean fish, kind of in general, or like a fish that we eat. Cool. But that's my favorite etymology, not because it's like unexpected where it comes from, but it's kind of unexpected where it went. Yeah. What language yeah. did it originate in? I'm pretty sure it's Proto-Germanic. That's so cool. Also, Lox is delicious. True fact. Fair. So it deserves to have not changed. <laughs> the collective wisdom of humanity deems that this fish was so delicious, we should not have uh, changed the word for it. I also, I think that in some Scandinavian languages, lox just means salmon. It doesn't specifically mean smoked salmon or like cured and smoked salmon. Mm -hmm. I think it, that it's just what you call lox uh, or what you call salmon. But it shows up in things like gravlax and that kind of thing as well. Uh, Jenny, do you have a favorite etymology? My favorite is contextual. My favorite is whichever one I'm getting to explain to one of my siblings. <laughs> Good answer. So... On every podcast, we have a puzzler. Last time, our puzzler was, what's an English word spelled with three double letters in a row? The answer is bookkeeper, double O, double K, double E, or woolen, double U, double O, double L. If that was your answer, either of them, good job. So for a new puzzler, what do we have this time? We have another word puzzle. It's short and sweet, just like last episodes. Uh, I'm going to spell three words, and your task is to figure out what they have in common. So the three words are J-O-B, P-O-L-I-S-H, and H-E-R-B. Now, there's a reason that I'm spelling them. It has to do with what they have in common. That's the only hint you're going to get. I'm sure it's pretty easy to look this one up on the internet, but again, that's cheating. And if you cheat, you should feel bad about yourself. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Linguistics After Dark is produced by M. Fossing Enterprises. Audio editing is done by me, 
Question wrangling and transcriptions are done by Jenny, and the show notes are done by Sarah. Our music is Covert Affair by Kevin McLeod. Our show is entirely listener-supported. You can help us by visiting patreon.com slash mfozzing, E-M-F-O-Z-Z-I-N-G, and by telling your friends about us. Ratings on iTunes help as well. Today, we want to say thanks to these awesome patrons, Brighton, Inga, Jeff, Dre, Bex, and Mitch. Find all our episodes and show notes online at linguisticsafterdark.com or on all your favorite podcast directories. And remember that the show notes actually do have the answers and some research in them. I'm going to go do a lot of research right now. And send us your questions, text or audio, if you have a sound question, to questions at linguisticsafterdark.com. Or tweet us at lxadpodcast. And you can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, also at LXAD Podcast. And until next time, if you weren't consciously aware of your tongue in your mouth, now you are. Do 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 do. That's not our music, but whatever. Which is really cool. Brains are cool. They really are. Brains are amazing. Yeah, I'm just actually cheating a little bit and looking at a map of Germany. Uh, um, how dare you? That's research. I know, but it's not research about language. It's research about how I should know geography and I don't. Oh, mood. It's the milky vegetable. <laughs>